They shift him from right to left. Play action to that side. Rolling right looking. Fires in the end zone. Got a man. Oh, touchdown. That's a tight end from 15 yards out. Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories Podcast, Season 3, Episode 6. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season, and today we are joined by the Commissioner of the Mid-American Conference, Dr. John Steinbrecher, and former Syracuse wide receiver, Kadri Ismail. Also joining us is the CEO and founder of Team IP, Randy Sparks. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate you to like, subscribe, and drop a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the bowl season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at bowl season. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and betters. Our first guest was named the eighth commissioner of the Mid-American Conference in 2009. This is his third commissioner job, as he has held the same title at the Mid-Continent Conference, now called the Summit League, as well as the Ohio Valley Conference. He is currently the longest tenured FBS commissioner at 15 years and is the only person to serve as commissioner in all three NCAA Division I subdivisions, entering his 30th year all overall. Please welcome to the show, Dr. John Steinbrecher. John, thanks for joining us. Nick, it's so good to be with you. The longest tenured FBS commissioner. I, I don't know what that means. It means you've been around for a while, obviously, but uh, it also means that uh, in your role, you've, you've kind of seen the modern evolution of FBS football. How have you seen the game change over the last decade and a half, both good and maybe not so good? Well, an, an assortment of things, I guess. Uh, styles of play have changed, right? We've seen much more of an evolution of uh, uh, up-tempo, a uh, little more wide open, those types of things. And that's that's really been kind of fun to watch. It's, it's exciting football. Um, off the field stuff, clearly what we've seen with, um, I don't know if transfers as much as people think because there was always a fair amount of that going on in various levels. Although certainly the transfer, evolution of the transfer portal, which was intended to make uh, it more transparent. It's done that exactly, and that's brought ramifications. Layer on top of that, name, image, and likeness, which we uh, didn't do a very good job as, as an enterprise of managing, so it's an un unregulated space, and that's certainly created a lot of the churn we've seen in it. On top of that, we have a fair amount of realignment going on, which is not uh, unique, it's occurred at various uh, times throughout the enterprise of intercollegiate athletics. Probably the timing of that is increasing because it's linked to television contracts. And as TV contracts, or at least in this current iteration, are getting shorter in length, the time periods of where we have, I, I guess, relative stability are decreasing. Yeah, it's a, you make an interesting point, John. It's uh, a lot of the change we're seeing going on is not unique to this time period. It just just seems like so much of it is happening all at once, right? As well as some some new things coming. Right? Well, that's very true, and it's unique in that it it really hasn't occurred on this scale at what I would call the upper end of the food chain. You know, the 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 Pac-12s, the Big Tens, the Big Twelve, that that sort. You've seen a lot of that. Uh, at the Division One subdivision, the FCS subdivision, my first commissioner's job, my first day on the job, 
was a day we had six schools depart and join another league. Now we knew that in advance. So, so that's been going on at various levels. The media hasn't really paid a whole lot of attention to that until you're dealing with um, schools and conferences where there's a little more revenue involved in the conversation. Well, there's certainly a lot for you to manage in your current role, but I want to go back to your college days where you were also juggling a lot. You were a two-sport college athlete in the 80s at Valparaiso. You managed to balance football, tennis, and academics, of course. What was that experience like, and how do you think it helps you relate to the student-athletes you govern? You know, it was a great experience. Um, uh, one, I love to compete, and so to be able to play a couple of sports uh, that I had played most of my life through college was, was really awesome. And the fact that they were really two different sports when you, as I've, as I've gone along in my career, I've appreciated, I played, you know, sport of football, which is kind of the ultimate logistical sport in terms of managing it, in terms of how it's conducted, you know, everything is, you go on a road trip, everything's managed down to the last minute. You go on a tennis trip, it's show up, get in the van, hit the road, coach, can we stop and let's get, let's get a snack here or something? You know, it's, it's a little less regulated, uh, but it still comes back to relationships, competition, um, driving yourself towards excellence, those sorts of things, and then managing all the other things in your life. Um, you can do that. I had two majors in college. You know what, if, if, if you want to excel, uh, academically and athletically, you can. You just have to put the time in. And and really, my academics got better because of lessons I learned in sport. And it's work on your weaknesses. Don't ignore them. Those all those types of things. And so, if you're struggling with something academically, you don't ignore it. You dig into it. You get down into the fundamentals of it. You go get help. You do all those things and spend time on it. And it's amazing when you do those things, you get better. Last year, the MAC won its second Bowl Challenge Cup. For our listeners, that award is given to the conference who has the best winning percentage during bowl season. Uh, Ohio, Buffalo, Bowling Green, Miami, Eastern Michigan, and Toledo all uh, participated in bowl games. What does this mean to the conference, and what do you think it says about the strength of MAC football? Well, we took a lot of pride in it because it was a great way to wrap up the year. And it was a year in which we started. Our September last year was not was not one of our better ones, which is when you play the, the most of your non-conference games, which is where you start to build the, the, the notoriety of your teams in your conference. And so they come into postseason play have really good matchups. And we thought going, going into the bowl season, I thought we had really great balanced matchups that all the games were toss-ups. And what was really gratifying yeah, we end up with a four and two record. We could have as easily been six and oh, we could have been oh and six. I think the two games we lost, we lost by a combined nine points. By the same token, the games we won were all really close games. That's what you want for bowl games. It keeps eyeballs involved. The kids are excited about it. Um, and it's it's no different in football than in really other sports. You build reputation and notoriety on what you do in the postseason. Those games leave a lasting memory. They're, they're played in time slots where there's very few other people playing, lots of people paying attention. And so to go out to excel then is really a great kick in the pants and helps carry you in to the next year. 
Well, not a, not a surprise that a football game involving a Mac team is, is exciting and goes down to the water. <laughs> the way you operate, which leads me to my next question. We have to talk about the phenomena that is midweek Maction. The Mac yeah. is beloved by football fans for providing football all, all seven days of the week. You know, once you get into October, November, you know, you can turn the TV on in the middle of the week and see a college football game. And if it wasn't for the Mac, you, you, you might not be able to do that. Tell us about that strategy and why it's so, so important to the league. You know, we've been playing midweek games in November for, oh gosh, 15, 18, maybe going on 20 years. And it's interesting, we didn't invent midweek football. I'll give that to Mike Slive when he was commissioner of Conference USA. Uh, worked with Chuck Gerber with ESPN at that time, and they developed that time slot. Conference USA took it and ran with it when uh, Mike went to the Southeastern Conference and they had a new commissioner came in. They decided to move out of that slot. We came into it and have really taken it and embraced it. Uh, and what it's done is provided a unique uh, time to showcase our member institutions, our teams, our players, our coaches. Uh, really, there's very, very few times when you play throughout a college season that you have clear air. And yet we're able to get that. And so when you have compelling stories to tell, it gives you the palette on which to, to paint that picture. You know, I go back about 10 years when we had Northern Illinois had that great year. In fact, I think it's seven years um, and uh, ended up going to the Orange Bowl. And they had a quarterback who ended up being third in the Heisman Trophy race. I don't know if we get that if we don't have the ability to showcase Northern Illinois that year. We had something similar with Western Michigan the year we ended up putting them into the Cotton Bowl. You know, it gives us a unique opportunity. It's helped grow us from being a really nice regional conference to having a national brand and national imagery so that our coaches can go anywhere in the country, can talk about our schools, recruit to our schools, talk to moms and dads and grandmas and say, even if you're on the West Coast, you're going to be able to see your, your son play every game you do with us. Well, in the last decade, every team in the MAC has competed in a bowl game from games on opening week of bowl season, opening day, I should say, all the way to those couple of New Year's six bowl games that you mentioned earlier. That means you've attended a lot of different bowls. Tell us on a personal level, what, what are some of your favorite bowl experiences watching your teams compete in the postseason? You, and you're right. I have had the, the privilege to be at a bunch of bowls. I'm probably at three or four or more of our, our games every year and then the, throwing the BCS now CFP games and, and those sorts of things. And they are all great events, whether, and I, I've played at all levels of games up and down our food chain. And you know what? They're all magical events for the student athletes. Uh, what's neat to see is if you're in a more of a community-based event, how the community takes that event, embraces it, gets involved. Uh, you see relationships build between people in that community and your teams. Um, or if you're off at a, a, a CFP or BCS event, just the magnitude of that and, and what comes with it. So much of my memories are more of the off-field things. And, and I go back to a memory from my first years uh, uh, with the Mid-American Conference. We were out at uh, Bowl Game in Boise. And as so many of the bowls do, they have a gift suite for the, for the student-athletes. So the student-athletes go into the suite. They're able to pick out some gifts and so on. 
I was sitting outside talking with the coach and the AD just uh, as, as they were doing all that. And a young man came out of the gift suite and talked about what he had ordered and he was actually crying. And so you're wondering what's, what's the problem? What happened? And he, he related, now this was a 20 year old young man. And he related that because of this gift suite and they're being able to be in the bowl game, this was the first time he was gonna be able to provide a Christmas gift for his mother and sister. That's, <laughs> that's just flat out powerful. I mean, you, um, it puts a lot of things in perspective, helps you better understand some of the situations some of these young men come through and and what what the value of first off what a scholarship to go and be able to get an education that you maybe wouldn't other but some of the other things around it and uh, I'll never forget that. Well, let me let's expand on that a little bit. Next season, the CFP will be expanding from four teams to twelve teams. Everyone's excited about that and look, looking forward to it. The playoff is exciting. College football needs a great way to crown a national champion every year. But there's 133 FBS programs, only 12 slots. So there, there are 36 other bowl games during bowl season that won't factor into the national championship equation. But John, tell us why those games are still so important to the universities and the student athletes. Yeah, I don't view it as any different than what we're doing today or what we did 10 days ago. And again, it was opportunities for our institutions, our student athletes and coaches to go out and compete at a high level, have a lot of people view them to celebrate the season they've had um, and celebrate football. And it's it's really a unique thing uh, that we have because of, again, because of the relationships. So many of these events are community-based. They mean something in that community. There's usually a, a pretty significant tie-in to local charities or other local activities in that event that allow you to celebrate whether you're in, in Boise, Idaho, or Nassau, the Bahamas, or Montgomery, Alabama, or I, I mean, I can go all the way down the list. They all have things that are incredible. And that's why I get a little frustrated every year you read something from the media, all these, these throwaway games. I got news for the, for the young men and women and coaches and fans who participate in those events, they're not throwaway events. There's something unique about that community that, um, another great example, you go to Montgomery, Alabama, and you say, why do I want to get excited about going to Montgomery, Alabama? And I help set up that game. Here's why. The, the history of our country is wrapped up in that city, whether it's from the Civil War, whether it's from civil rights and social rights, all of that comes to bear right there at Montgomery. And you get a chance to go there and touch it and feel it and be a part of it. And we've had institutions take professors with them. We've had teams go and walk across the bridge at Selma. All of those things that we talk about having a bowl experience, that's a bowl experience that's linked to their education that's invaluable. Yeah, I well, I obviously agree, John. The, sometimes we get so wrapped up nowadays in the business machinations of college football, and we forget that it's still uh, really important to maximize the student athlete experience. And 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 bowl games do that, as you noted. We, 
you know, the, the, the locations that these student athletes are able to go to places they've never been to before. A lot of times places they'll never have the opportunity to go to again, really gives them these lifelong memories that they, they, you know, years later, they tell the stories about how meaningful they are to them. Absolutely. Last question, John, you took one of, uh, you took on one of the most important issues to modern student athletes. You implemented the first conference wide mental health program. What are you seeing from your student athletes that you led you to take action? <laughs> we listened to them, quite frankly. I asked the question. Uh, we had, when I first came in, we talked to our student athletes, and one of the issues that came up was around the amount of time they spent on their sport. And from that evolved some time obligations, time demands rules that we implemented first, we shared with the NCA, and that's really where the NCA's time demands rules emanate from. Come back a couple of years after that, went back to our student athletes and said, where's an area we need to spend some time to think about? And they came back and said, we're concerned about mental health issues. I had not been tracking on that. And so we put together a group, spent about 18 months, dug into it, and came out with a, a nice template of uh, best practices, things we ought to be doing, and it's resulted in a great deal of investment on our end uh, to support our student athletes, to provide greater pathways for them to seek assistance if they need it, to focus on eliminating the stigma around mental health, understanding that for a student athlete to excel, to be as good as they wanna be, both in the classroom and on the field, they need to be physically fit, they need to be mentally all there, they need to be spiritually all there. And so if they're deficient in any one of those areas, they're not gonna really excel to the level they want. And so it's treating a mental health issue, whether it's depression or anxiety or an eating disorder, we could go on, treating that, thinking about that in the same fashion that we think about a, a sprained ankle or a, a, a busted up elbow or things like that. And teaching our coaches and administrators and student athletes to think along those ways. And then again, providing the pathways to seek assistance uh, when necessary. Well, John, we really appreciate your time. You, know, you and I have known each other. You've been commissioner of the MAC for 15 years, so it's been at least that long. Always had a lot of respect for you and the job you do, the way you conduct yourself, both, both personally as well as in your job. And I don't know, John, you must be doing something right. You, you, you've managed in this era of chaos in college athletics, you preside over maybe maybe one of the most stable conferences in terms of membership in, in all of Division One. So congratulations on that. Thank you for all you do for the game of college football. And thanks for joining us. Nick, it's been a privilege to chat with you today. Take care. The forecast for this tax season, it's going to rain refunds, lots of refunds. File for less and get more with Tax Act, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest was a wide receiver and kick returner for the Syracuse Orange and was drafted by the Minnesota Vikings in 1993. He played 10 seasons in the NFL with five different organizations and is best known by his nickname, The Missile. Please welcome to the show, Cadre Ismail. Cadre, thanks for joining us, buddy. Appreciate you having me on, Nick. Let's jump right into your time at Syracuse. You were recognized as an All-American in both football and track. I believe the only person other than you to do that at Syracuse was Jim Brown, so pretty, pretty good company there. As you reflect back, tell us about your time at Syracuse 
and how meaningful those years were for you now that you look back at them? Yeah, I mean, I, I tell you what, the growing up element of life for me happened while I was at Syracuse. I was recruited by Randy Etzel, who was a very just awesome recruiter when it came to, you know, getting a talent uh, pool of players to come to Syracuse. And, uh, you know, my senior year of high school, he invited my brother and I uh, up to Syracuse to watch them take on Penn State. And literally, they just came right out hot, right out the gate. I remember it was a play pass. Uh, Don McPherson slung it down the field on a post route to Rob Moore for the opening salvo, if you will, of an incredible game. Rob scores a touchdown. You couldn't hear, literally, my brother was sitting next to me. You couldn't hear anything that was going on. Uh, it was that deafening of a crowd. And they go on to, to have an undefeated season. Um, you know, I watched them all the way. And for me, it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Syracuse. Um, I just felt like in my heart of hearts, that was the place for me to go, to grow up as a, uh, a player, as a person. And uh, yeah, I, that, that kind of started me on my path to, uh, to uh, playing at Syracuse. I tell young people today what those atmospheres used to be like at the Dome. I, I, and I, I also tell them it can happen again. It can happen again. We just uh, we need to keep moving forward in that direction. Absolutely. I think one thing um, about the the Carrier Dome that was, in my mind, you know, a unique place to play. It it was the concrete mixed with the only place that sold beer on campus. Somehow they got a legislation passed that gave them an opportunity to do Most that. Didn't do that. They wouldn't do it. They they didn't do it. But Syracuse found a way. <laughs> Syracuse found a way. I think it, it it gave a a really cool blue collar atmosphere because you know you obviously had uh, Western New York with the Bills obviously uh, down in in you know the the uh, opportunity to watch the Giants or the Jets play in, in New Jersey, but. Uh, yeah, you 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 had a a football passionate fan base, and I think you know just the way you know Dick McPherson, our coach, may he rest in peace, but uh, the way he was able to you know revitalize uh, the Orange program and 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 just I I think you know it was, it was amazing. Um, I really thought you know the way in which you know his staff and everyone just recruited uh, that unique player to go there and 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 play. Uh, some tremendous football. We we had the freeze option, which I look at today when I, I see people talking about RPOs and I'm like, man, we had the RPO. We just called it the freeze option. And yeah, and you guys invented that. People don't realize that. Coach Deal you. Yeah. And, yeah, you you guys were the first to do it. Absolutely. So it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed, you know, those those first few years of of growing as a person um at Syracuse. You, now your bowl career is is unreal. I mean, people should be so fortunate to have these type of experiences. Four years, four bowl games, four wins, four amazing locations. Two were under Coach McPherson, as you mentioned. Two two with Coach Pasqualoni. You 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 played in the Peach Bowl in Atlanta, the Aloha Bowl in Hawaii, the Hall of Fame Bowl in Tampa, the Fiesta Bowl in Arizona. Tell us a little bit about those experiences and how they've stuck with you throughout the rest of your life. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. The Peach Bowl, um, again, I was a uh, redshirt freshman and I primarily was on special teams. And, you know, that's something where, you know, you make your bones on special teams. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're recognizing what you have to do as a player to, to get on the field. My brother uh, played at Notre Dame. You know, his uh, start or his rise to stardom came from playing kickoff return. So for me, uh, you know, I was a kickoff returner and I was like, all right, if my brother can do it, I can do it. And so I was really inspired. Well, we play uh, Georgia SEC school. Uh, we go down to Atlanta you know, everyone is talking about, you know, Georgia Bulldogs. I actually uh, met a couple of players from uh, that that team. We had a, you know, the Peach Bowl and all bowls. They usually bring both teams together in some form or fashion so I met some of the players, we hung out, and I was like, wow, you know, some good dudes. Um, but what I remember the most is just, you know, just going out there and playing and, and you know, taking it to a, a Georgia football team that everyone thought, you know, they had an advantage over us. But that was kind of the start um, of the standard, if you will, for Syracuse. You know, we, we recognize, um, obviously, playing Auburn, the tie game, in the Sugar Bowl next year, Hall of Fame Bowl, another January 1st bowl game, getting a victory there. But now I, along with my other uh, redshirt freshman uh, teammates, you know, we had a chance to continue the legacy. So, you know, going down to the Peach Bowl was really awesome. And then I think from there, it was just the expectation of going to a bowl. I mean, that's all you knew. You just knew, hey, you go out, spring ball practice, you get yourself ready, get your mind right come together as a team and present yourself each week with the, the level of competition and, and the competitive mindset to go out there and compete. And uh, again, yeah, like you said, going to January 1st bowl games uh, was kind of like the, 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 the way in which we wanted to uh, say, look, you know, we're a relevant football team. We're not just a top 25 team that just shows up. Uh, during a regular season, but also during bowl games. That Fiesta Bowl, you know, I was I was there working um, with the coaching staff then. That's 1992. That's how long we've known each other. I, I dug this out just for the occasion. So this this was yes. right after the game in the locker room. You and I, your brother, your brother wearing a Syracuse shirt, which I kind of yeah. wish he that throughout his uh, playing career, but. Um, that was a lot of fun. I mean, we beat Colorado. Everybody knows that the Deion Sanders Colorado today, and they assume they were always bad before that, the fans of today, but that, that was a, that was the, the other golden era of Colorado. They had just won a national championship. Cordell Stewart was the quarterback. And I don't think people thought we were going to win that game, but, uh, that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Hard to believe. It's no, it's interesting. Yeah, and 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 the 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 thing that I look back on, I think every game that we were in, it was like, oh, you know, Syracuse is here, but we don't think they're going to win. And 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 it is interesting because literally we the year before played Ohio State in the Hall of Fame Bowl. Uh, then when the Fiesta Bowl comes around, and they're asking us to to represent in that bowl game, and we're playing Colorado, we we felt very confident. You know, it's like it doesn't matter who we play. We we know what we're capable of doing. Um, it was amazing how 
just the way in which we operated as a, a football team, uh, the way in which we traveled, the way in which we practiced, all of those things, you know, it was, it was, it was awesome to see, awesome to be around the fellas, um, people like yourself, you know, I, I think it's, 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 it's highly underrated, you know, the operations people, the operations people, as I look back on it, um, without you guys, I'm telling you, it, 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 it makes for long seasons. I, I think I was, uh, I was, I will speak for the rest of my teammates when I say you spoiled us the way in which, you know, we had everything running like clockwork and, uh, yeah, your professionalism, the way in which you treated us, <clears throat> not saying that we were spoiled brats, but there was a level of, yeah, being spoiled. And, and I think at the same time, it put us at ease and allowed us to go out there when it came time to play. We just went out and played and played our best. Well, thank you for that, Q. I, I, you know, you look back on it, we were all part of the same team, right? We all just had a different job. We were, we were all friends. We, we were working together and uh, we won a lot of games and had a lot of fun doing it. You know, one of the things I think about, I think about it more as I get older, you and I spoke about this recently. Do, do those experiences mean more to you now, looking back on them today? And do you feel you appreciated them enough as they were happening? We're, we're in a society where everybody's in a hurry. What am I going to do next? Where am I going? And they don't, I don't know if we enjoy the moment enough. And you think back at all those times and just that picture brings back great memories to me. Do you, do you think you appreciated it enough? So that's a great question, Nick. Um, there's, there's a story I want to uh, share and, and, and it involves you and I. And, but to answer your question, staying present is everything. Um, and you don't really know what you don't know. Um, staying present to me is going to the kickoff classic, going against USC, and my finger was broken. And I wanted to play so badly. My whole entire arm was like just buzzing with just numbness. But yet at the same time, I was like, I want to play so badly. I wound up dropping, I think, two or three balls. Uh, I was replaced by Shelby Hill, who was an amazing teammate of mine. Uh, but at the same time, he was the better player at that time. Um, staying present was still believing in myself, even though I know, hey, I got an uphill battle to climb. Um, recognizing that my, my opportunity might or might not come. When my opportunity came, it was when Coach McPherson left to go to the New England Patriots. Paul Pasqualoni comes in. A receiver coach who I didn't even know, uh, Dennis Goldman, he comes in and he literally is like, hey, everything is on the table. I'm going to give you an opportunity to compete. He gives me an opportunity to compete. And next thing you know, I go through spring ball, have a great spring ball. That year, we played Vanderbilt. We opened up with them. And the first play of the game was 228 special. 228 special had me at the X receiver. I, you know, do a drag route to the opposite guard. I plant my foot in the ground and I come back out on a shallow route. Uh, Marvin Graves is my quarterback. He hits me. I get 15, 16 yards first down. From that point forward, my career literally takes off. It's staying in the present and recognizing that there's a level of work and responsibility for yourself. There's an inner working for yourself. And I think that's where the appreciation comes. Here's my story with you and I. So when you came aboard, 
you know, you were this this young dude, handsome dude. Everybody was like, yo, Nick, ah, yeah. <laughs> and and you're still handsome. I mean, let's not get it twisted. I know. I understand. But it's less and less every time. <laughs> at the same time, literally, from an operation standpoint, I'll never forget, you know, because of uh, what I was, you know, able to do, <clears throat> there was a level of like, hey, Q, um, you got some fan mail, you got some things that you, you know, um, people want to interact with you. How do you, you want to handle it? I was like, I don't know. I mean, you know, whatever. But it was a, it was a level of, of, staying present and like you know what q i think you should at least interact with people because they like what they're seeing and they like what they 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 see in you go ahead and do it and and i always remember that because i'll never forget this we we're playing west virginia and i might choke up i'm trying not to but we we're playing west virginia at west virginia and i'll never forget that i tell this story all the time and, and why I feel it is my obligation to be authentic around fans, regardless of the circumstance. Because we were on a field during our, our walkthrough period before we went out to our team dinner. And there was obviously a lot of pressure on you to get everything in order and all that. Well, there was this gentleman jogging around the field. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking, and all of a sudden I look and I'm like, oh my God, that is Earl Campbell. Earl Campbell, for those of who might not know, Heisman Trophy winner, played at Texas, had an amazing career as the Houston Oilers running back. Number 34, Tyler Blue, or uh, Texas. He was from Tyler, Texas, to Tyler Rose, excuse me. Love ya, Blue. Love ya, Blue. Houston Oilers. I thought I was going to be. Earl Campbell, when I grew up, when I first played, I had my thigh pads. I was this kid, maybe, I don't know, maybe 90 pounds, if that. I had two thigh pads in my, my pants because I wanted my thighs to be as big as Earl Campbell. So you had the pressure of getting everybody into the locker room, change on the bus. I was like, Nick, I am not going anywhere until I meet Mr. Campbell. And this is where I get choked up because you were like, you saw the intensity in my eyes. You were like, all right, all right, all right. you could have been a jerk. You could have been all that, but you were very gracious that day. And literally my childhood, my childhood hero, Earl Campbell, like he stopped, he came up to me. I was like sitting there in awe. Whoo. I mean, it was a moment for me that I'll never forget. But it was because of your ability to just, hey, stay in the moment. You could have been like, oh, no, we got a schedule to keep. We got this. We got that. Man, I mean, he was so amazing. He was giving a speech to the, the local hospital there. And, and he was so gracious with his time. I mean, I just, it, I don't care. If there's people who ask him for my autograph or, you know, if I'm out and about, I, I do a ton of uh, TV and radio current day and all that. I've been doing it for the last two decades. And and it just that that memory there stuck with me for forever. Um, you know, he was he was gracious. But I also remember, you know, Nick Carparelli could have been that jerk, but he wasn't. And 
And again, it's it is it's staying present. It's it's allowing a boyhood memory to to be manifested, and for for me to be able to to just have a lasting memory that I'll always cherish. Well, thank you for that story, Q. I, I don't I don't remember that story. I do remember Old Campbell being there, but I don't remember the role I played in you meeting him. And uh, yeah, that's. Uh, it makes me feel good to think that I, I I've always tried to stay in the moment. You know, when you're, you remember our operation back then, it was pretty intense. There was a lot of pressure, not a lot of room to deviate from the schedule. Um, but it makes me feel good to know that I, I was in the present then. I, I, I'm sure I realized how important that was to you, you know, and the memory, obviously the memory that created was worth risking being a, a, a couple minutes late. And, and I'll say this Q, you know, you kind of treat, you know, you try to treat everybody equally, I would say, actually say fairly, but you kind of treat people the way they treat you and the way everybody acts. So, you know, to, to go out of my way for you was probably a little bit easier than it was for some other guys. We won't, have, we won't mention names, but uh, I don't know. I'd like to think that I would have done that for anybody, but uh, for you, uh, happy it happened. Let me, uh, let's, so let's move on. Um, after a very successful college career, you were drafted in the 1993 NFL draft by the, by the Vikings. Take us through draft day and how you felt the moment you realized, wow, I'm a professional football player. I tell you, um, my brother, you know, Rocket, everybody knows him as a Rocket. Um, his career uh, at, you know, Notre Dame was, you know, epic and all that. And it was motivating to me. And there were only two people at that time. <laughs> so we are recording this and, and in you know, full disclosure, I'm on my mobile device. Uh, at my facility, I have my you know camera set up. I do a ton of podcasts and all that, but I was just running some errands. And I was like, you know what? I got to do it at my place. I'm going to do it on my mobile device. So be it. And with all that said, um, for my brother and I, you know, his his climb uh, to the heights that he had back then. And there was another guy by the name of Michael Jordan that still to this day, people who have never even known he was a basketball player, they, they wear his merchandise. I mean, those two guys were people that um, motivated me. And I'm laughing because, you know, we're, I'm on this mobile device. Well, we have VHS tapes. And that was the way I looked at the Michael Jordan highlights and if I was so graced with someone sending me a rocket VHS thing to slap into my uh, my 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 player, my VHS recorder, I could go ahead and watch it on the uh, the screen and, and low def. Well, anyway, all that being said, I was turned to to play and to go out and you know uh, do my absolute best, and so. I didn't, I don't think I realized um, that I was going to be put into a position to be drafted. I remember after coming away from the, the bowl game, um, the Fiesta Bowl, uh, there was uh, this, this literally my entire locker was filled with mail. And so not that I was all arrogant about it, but I was like, oh, well, clearly this is fan mail. No, it wasn't, Kadri. It wasn't fan mail at all. I guess NCAA rules, and, and you would know better than I would back then, too. You couldn't obviously have any representation. So y'all took our mail that was addressed to us that were from different agents. 
And yep. I had no clue whatsoever that I was being sought after by so many uh, agents, so many sports agents. And that was like my first indication of like, huh, well, there's a business to this thing, huh? And so my journey, you know, from there to the Senior Bowl, um, had a great experience at the Senior Bowl. I think I scored a touchdown from Alex Van Pelt, uh, the Pitt quarterback who I think he's a coach in the league now. Um, literally just, you know, going to the combine, running the 40. Everybody was all like, oh, the 40, the 40, you know, um, doing the whole gamut of, of uh interviews and literally lo and behold here comes draft day and with draft day the biggest thing that i remember was that there was so much talk because it took a visit up to the green bay packers um the chicago bears they wanted a receiver uh espn was covering a draft and they were like oh you know this is the por portion of the draft where you know the receivers should be starting to come off the board and i'll never forget because curtis conway wound up being drafted in the first round by the Chicago Bears. And everybody was like, oh, that's where Kadri Ismail is going to go. So I was like, oh, I'm not going to get drafted. It's over. It's done. I had no clue. I mean, once that, you know, happened, I was like, oh, my God. But uh, then I get this call. I'm at my mom's house uh, in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. I get this call from uh, Dennis, Dennis Green and Denny. He gets on the phone. He was like, hey, um, Kadri, we just want to um, say, you know, we're about to draft you. And, you know, we uh, think you're a heck of a receiver and we think you'll be a great addition uh, to our team. And, uh, you know, I was just very thankful to be drafted then. And, and that's, I think, where it just all kind of hit me. Uh, went down, told my uh, family that I was drafted by the Minnesota Vikings. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the journey for the professional uh, portion of my athletic career started then. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you haven't let football go since you hung up your cleats. You, you, you've worked as a broadcaster for the Ravens, as well as a few other broadcast organizations over the years. You also, uh, you now uh, are at a, you're a sports performance coach in Maryland. Uh, so kind of a two-part question. How is it seeing the game from a different perspective, either talking about it or, or coaching athletes and helping them be better? And specifically, What's it like being a dad to three children who played at the collegiate level? Talk about being the parent of an athlete and watching your kids do what they love to do from the stands. A little different kind of pressure than when you played. I think it was easier for yourself to play than watching your kids, I would guess. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, you know, the aspect of broadcasting it and, and watching uh, the way people play and, and, and do what they do, um, it, it's really cool because my goal is to give the fan the understanding of, of what's it like. But then at the same time, I'm giving it what's it like also through the player's eyes. And so I, I have the fan in me. Like, in other words, I get excited too. Um, I, I am, you know, that guy that feels uh, the the frustration of a drop or a fumble or a missed block or missed assignment defensively and and the guy got behind him or I get you know animated when you you have a pass interference call and it's it's not called or you know they call that oh that's a hold and you're like bro what, what are we talking about here that wasn't even a hold like what, you know why would you throw that you know penalty 
So I, I try to give a fullness of perspective. That's my style. When it comes to my training, for me, it's three decades worth of information that I'm imparting into an athlete or a person who is just trying to be a better mover. So those three decades, it's it's like, goodness, going way back to uh, a gentleman named Mike Wojcik. Mike Wojcik was my strength and conditioning coach at Syracuse. I was, you know, I came in as the one of the weakest freshmen. And in the Syracuse weight room, there was a board that showed your 40, your vertical, uh, your bench, and your squat. And I was like, I'm never going to be on that board. Only the, I think it was like the top, you know, five guys at each position will get up on that board. And and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be there. Well, you know, he, he rode me so hard and, and it was, it was, it was tough to deal with as a freshman, but, but he also was very fair and, and I love the man and just the way he helped prepare me without him, there is no two sport all American. There is no trivia. Who's a, uh, First two-sport All-American at Syracuse since Jim Brown. There's no trivia if there's no Mike Wojcik encouraging me and also saying, you know, I'm giving you permission to skip out on winter workouts to go and train with the track team. So um, my, my full lens of training, both mentally and physically, both adult and child, uh, comes from three decades worth of experiences. And so... That's how I kind of have my foundation. Now, when it comes to my kids, um, it was interesting because I think early on in their career, I was hard on them in the training aspect, but I was also loud. <laughs> I was so bad as, as a parent watching games from an official standpoint. I never really cared. I could care less about, you know, living vicariously through my kids. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Been there, done that. I've been to the Super Bowl, bro. Trust me. I don't really care. You know, like I, I know what time it is when it comes to both, you know, Pop Warner, Pee Wee, Rec League, travel. You know, my daughter was an amazing athlete. And she literally, I think she went to like five regional championships in high school. She won, uh, I believe, uh, two or three state titles in basketball. Um, you know, she she was just phenomenal. And she's more of a, a legend in the Baltimore area than I am. So people will say either one or two things here. It's like, hey, aren't you uh, Rocket's brother? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, your brother went to Notre Dame. Yes, yes, he went to Notre Dame. Oh, wow. Hey, man, your daughter, didn't she? <laughs> I started laughing like, yes, yes, I am Kalea Ismael's dad. Yes, 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 that's me. But I say all those things with pride. And so both of my sons have played uh, collegiately and my youngest, he's still in uh, school now. He's actually, the NCAA, once COVID hit, they granted him an extra year eligibility and he was like, you know what, I'm going to take it. And so he's down at Samford uh, playing wide receiver. Um, so it's, it's really cool to interact with him. I get a chance to, you know, talk about nuances of route running, nuances of you know, concepts, how to, you know, recognize different defenses, what the defensive backs are thinking and doing. Um, so it's it's a lot of fun just wearing multiple hats um, as a father and as a trainer. Last question for you. 
you 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 have a pretty fast family. Okay, you're Regib the rocket, right? Came first, went to Notre Dame. Fast dude. You're the missile. You have a younger brother, Suleiman. It's pretty fast. Okay. Who wins in a 40 yard dash? Two part question in, in your heydays. So let's say mid nineties. And then, and then today. So I will honestly say this, because this is, if I had a, a, a penny, not a dime, not a quarter, a penny for every time someone has asked this question, bruh, we would be, I would fly you into my studio. And we'd be having our own just like next level podcast with all the bells and whistles. He literally ran the 10th fastest U.S. time, all time, in 55 meters. His zero to 10 was like epic. Like his zero to, I mean, put it this way. When he was, we were, I was running the NFL fastest man contest and, you know, I didn't really care about whether or not I won it or not, or, you know, just, I was down there. I was like, Oh, the NFL PA calls me up. Hey, uh, we were looking for a participant in the uh, NFL fastest man contest. Yeah, we're going to pay you a couple thousand dollars to be a participant. And uh, Oh yeah. You got an all pay trip done. I'm there. Click Tim Brown. Uh, my brother's uh, teammate, um, for the that time, Los Angeles Raiders. Tim Brown's a Hall of Fame wide receiver. Uh, won the Heisman Trophy at Notre Dame. And Tim, you know, he and I obviously knew each other well. And so Tim comes up to me, goes, "Hey man, I don't think people realize how fast your brother is." And I was like, well, "You know, Tim, like, give give me your your point of view." So the Raiders they covet speed. That was their big thing. You know, you got to be fast. You got to be fast. The whole nine yards. Every receiver on that team ran four, three, one, or better. Uh, the one kid, Alexander Wright, ran easy four, two, like it was nothing. Yeah, James Jett, who was a part of the Olympic uh, four by 100 meter winning relay team, he has a gold medalist. Um, you had Tim Brown, who, like I said, he ran four, three, two. Um, you had, I think, at that time, I, I believe Willie Galt was still playing. He might have been on either on the outside looking in, but there was there was a couple of other fast dudes um, that was on that team. Tim said, Kadri, I'm telling you right now, Rocket, literally, we would do warm-ups. And, and Rocket, you know, would do his sprinting or whatever. We would, after our warm-ups and after practice was over, we had conditioning. All of us on the line, all of us alpha males, all of us trying to see who's fastest. Your brother was toying with us. Literally, he would accelerate past all of us like we were standing still. So to answer your question, I was not 4.1 seconds in the 40-yard dash. My 40 was only 4.32, wasn't that fast. Literally, he made me in high school this is the only time I was. <laughs> this is the only time I was ever jealous of him. He was so fast in high school; he's blowing away everybody. I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm gonna be a hurdler. So I, <laughs> I changed my position and my whole events just so I could hurdle, so I could say, okay, yeah, I'm fast. So when I say he had the 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 kiss of speed, 
his zero to 10, like it was epic. Now, current day, I'm just saying, I feel pretty good about where I'm at in my 52 eight years of, of, of living on this planet and my ability to keep myself in a level of shape. I'm not so sure he can get me. Now, that's me talking as a younger brother. Older brother might still be like, yo, bro, don't poke the bear. But I'm poking the bear. I think I can get him. All right. I'd love to see that. So, see, patience, right? You can honestly, you could have said when you were younger, someday, someday, big bro, I'll be faster than you. <laughs> 30 some odd, 40 some odd years later. Woohoo. <laughs> someday, someday. Well, Q, thanks so much for your time. I, I you know, we've known each other for 30 years. You're, you, you were a good dude back then. You're, you're still a good dude and always will be. Really appreciate our friendship and appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you having me on. Our next guest is the founder and CEO of Team IP. Please welcome to the show, Randy Sparks. Randy, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Pleasure to be with you this morning. College football is easily the second most popular sport in the U.S. behind only the NFL. And so much goes into the fanfare of college football game days. The tailgating, the student section, the band, the school colors. How important is it to the fabric of college football for fans to show up on game day wearing their school's gear? I think it's very important. I think it's something that fans enjoy doing. You know, in the 20s, I was a Hurricane fan, season ticket holder. How dare you go to the old Orange Bowl, right? Not showing up in your colors. And so I, I think whether it's the water cooler at work or, or you know, amongst your neighbors and friends, you're going to be asked the question, uh, who do you, who, who's your team? But you may not have to answer that question because you already got it on and it doesn't take long for them to figure it out. So, uh College football fans are passionate. They love wearing their colors. And I think it's what's part of makes the game, the game great. Yeah, you, you walk up to a game and you, you're just kind of eyeballing each other, seeing what, what, uh, <laughs> what each other's wearing. You form an opinion pretty quick whether you like that person or not. I, I think yeah, that or you go to a, an away game and uh, you're outnumbered. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, it's a certain personality trait, I think. Somebody who wears their visiting team colors proudly amongst the uh, you know, in college football, sometimes 100,000 wearing the other color. Absolutely. I think one of the best parts of bowl season for me is, is doing just that, walking into the stadium on game day, seeing two sets of fan bases in the stands ready to celebrate their team's great season. You often see the stadium, you know, the way they seat the fans, it's basically divided in half by school colors, right? You, you have one exactly. half of the team's colors, one half's the other, leaves no doubt which side is rooting for which team. You know, Team IP is a national leader in experiential marketing for championship merchandise at, at events, just like bowl games, producing decorated apparel and branded products for fans for over 30 years. Tell us about your approach at Team IP to servicing the fans on game day and throughout the year. Well, the same reason why they want to wear their uniform, their jersey and their colors, uh, souvenir merchandise is about I was there. So we talk about the great games, but if your team is, won six games, you're qualified to go to a bowl or a New Year's Six Bowl or a semifinal or a national championship. Not only are you supporting them, but if you're one of those fans that gets to go to the game, gets to go to the team hotel, gets to be in that stadium and, and feel that excitement, Team IP is there to make sure that uh, that souvenir merchandise goes home with them. Uh, certainly they can buy it online if they can't make it there. But uh, it's a part of the fabric of what a fan experience is. 
and we're so happy to provide it for all the fans across the country. Well, you know, there's so much to the sports business from the athletes on the field to the fans in the stands to the people that service both of those groups. And uh, what you do at Team IP to enhance the game day experience is truly amazing. Really appreciate uh, what you do for the game, Randy, and for joining us here today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nick. Yep. Take care. Okay. Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Today's guests were brought to you by Tappet. Understand how going cashless builds loyalty, engages fans, and boosts your bottom line. If you missed any of our past episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate you to like, subscribe, and drop a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening.